All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy New Year. That's a week late, but okay. That was, uh, that was weak as well. Let's try again. Happy New Year. There we go. Hey, uh, LifePoint family, welcome back. It's good to uh, be here with you. Uh, guests, if you are new this morning, I've got a chance to meet some of you, but I just want to say welcome. My name's Kale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus, and we always say this to our new folks. So there are some QR codes in front of you. Guests, uh, feel free to use your phone and use that QR code, or just type in lpguest.com. Uh, that'll have a bunch of resources for you there this morning. There's a guest information card. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment just to fill that out, we would love to connect with with you and get some feedback, but also the message notes are there. So if you need uh, the message notes for this morning, the scripture passages, LifePoint family, all that's on the LifePoint Ohio app. You can take notes there, uh, but guests, that'll be there for you as well. Uh, I want to mention one other thing. Next Sunday, both at the 9.30 and at the 11 a.m., Life Group leaders, there's a Life Group huddle uh, next uh, Sunday. So at 1 at 9.30, 1 at 11 a.m. That's the first time we've got one offered at both gathering times. So Life Group leaders, thank you for what you do. I hope you're resting well during our life group term break before we launch again on the 21st. And life group leaders, I hope you can make some time to be there next Sunday because rarely do we get a chance to get all of our life group leaders together in the same room. So just mark your calendars for that next week. Uh, We are uh, kicking off a brand new series today uh, that will go for five weeks that we're calling Broken Mirrors. We're looking at this reality that broken people reflect a perfect God. The broken people reflect a perfect God. Uh, the, the artwork, I think, shows it well, right? The idea of the broken mirror, you can still see, even in its brokenness, you can still see the image that it's reflecting, right? When we look at people, we see people who are made in the image of God, but we are, in fact, broken, desperately in need of a Savior. And yet, even in our brokenness and even in our failures and our sinfulness, you still see the image of God reflected back. Every person that you see, every person in this room, every person, all eight billion of us are a reflection of the image of God. That's why we're valuable. It's why we have dignity as human beings because we're made in the image of God. And I want to address, even as I say, you know, broken people, I want to address, if you're here today, Maybe a New Year's resolution for you is to go back to church, or maybe you're new to Christianity and you've never been to church. I think two misconceptions that I hear a fair amount that maybe you're wrestling with now is, hey, your conception of church is that it's a place where people gather who think they're better than everybody else. And I just want you to know that's not true. We do not think that we're better than everybody else, and any time that we do fall into those patterns of thinking, that's wrong on our part. Because what we know to be true of ourselves is that we are sinners deeply in need of the grace of Jesus. We're no better than anyone else. All of us, as people made in the image of God, are broken in need of redemption and restoration, put back together by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us at the cross. Secondly, if you're here and you think, I need to put on a face here, right? And that's true of, you, you may be new to church, you may have been in church your whole life, and there's this temptation, I think, for us to think when we show up here, put away the arguments, put away the mess, and put on the good face and the smile, and I just want you to know, you really don't have to do that, all right? Part of the reason we're all here is because we don't have everything put together, and we are gathering in acknowledgement of the goodness of God and that only He is good, and we are, we're wrecks sometimes, and we desperately need Him. And in fact, we would say, when you look at the scriptures, it seems to teach us that God can really only begin to put us back together and shape us into something new when we come to Him and we acknowledge the brokenness. The doctor can't help you until you acknowledge that you're sick. And so I would say, not only, not only do you not have to put a face on here, 
but it is spiritually unhealthy and unhelpful to do so. Come as you are, and we'll love one another imperfectly as Christ has loved us. And our hope is that as we try to love one another, imperfect as we are, and imperfectly as we will love one another, that the watching world will get a glimpse of the image of God. In this series, we're going to look at some imperfect people uh, through the scriptures. We're going to look at Hebrews 11. So if you have a Bible, go to Hebrews 11. We're going to use that as our launching point and uh, look through what is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. Um, And we're going to look at actually some of the lesser known characters in Hebrews 11. A while back, we did a series where we saw some of the more prominent ones, but these people from the Old Testament who are commended because of their faith. And we're going to try to do a couple of things simultaneously. We're going to look at their stories, and we're also going to see how those people and their stories reflect the core values that we have as a church, core values that we've taken from the scriptures. So everybody do me a favor, a little group participation. Hold up your hand, right? Hold up one hand. All right, there we go, all right? So I'm gonna throw up these on the screen, right? These are our core values, and we use our, our hand, G-R-A-S-M-P, right? So just do that, G-R-A-S-M-P. And gospel identity, reaching priority, authentic community, spiritual intimacy, and personal ministry, right? And you'll see that there's a phrase that goes with each one of those that helps you remember that. And part of the reason I ask you to do the hand is the thumb is gospel identity. And we're gonna talk about, right, in this series, as we look at the core values, there's a reason we start with gospel identity. Because understanding who you are in Christ, like the thumb makes the rest of the hand work, (laughs) understanding your identity as someone made and remade in the image of God, in the image of Christ, washed by his blood, as we'll talk about today, is so fundamental to everything else that we do and that we are as believers. But we'll go through those in this series and look at how, how do we live those out and grow in those corporately as a church and in our life groups and then as individuals as well. So let's go to Hebrews 11. If you have a Bible, if not, it'll be on the screens here for you or in the notes as well. Hebrews 11, we're going to read just the first four verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Alex addressed this earlier in his just sort of uh, pastoral moment there where he said, look, we have to believe those promises that God says, I do have good plans for your life that God does love you and the the difficulty of faith, faith is not believing things that don't make sense. Faith isn't just saying, oh, I know it's illogical, but I'm gonna believe anyway. Faith is trusting a person, specifically God, and trusting his promises for your life and saying, man, he has told me that he loves me and he's proven that in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And so I'm believing him in spite of sometimes the evidence of my life. I just had a conversation this morning with someone about that, that the evidence is hard and seems to suggest otherwise. But we believe in the promises and the goodness of God even in the difficulties and hardships of life. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, and this is important, verse two, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. By it, this is so good. All right, as, you, as we go through Hebrews 11, you're gonna see it's not by all of their good works and by their perfect lives that the people of old, the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, are commended. It's by faith that they're commended. One of the great tensions of reading Hebrews 11 is it seems to be celebrating these people and say, by faith they did this. And you go back and you read their lives and you're like, they're as messed up as I am. 
You look at Abraham and Sarah, you look at all the David and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Not all of their works were very good. Some of them had pretty rough lives. Some of them did some very terrible things and you say, why are they being commended? It almost feels more like the hall of failures sometimes as much as the hall of faith. And so you, why, why are they commended? By their faith, they were commended. Not because they got everything right. But because at the end of the day, when God spoke a promise to them, imperfectly, they believed that promise. They trusted God, and by that, they were commended and seen as righteous. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. None of us were there when the earth was formed. We don't have any video evidence or even human eyewitness testimony. We have God's word. God saying, I was there. <laughs> and when I said, let there be light, there was light. And by faith, we believe him. Verse four, here's where we get to the first story that we're gonna look at here in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered to Cain, or to God, excuse me, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, first thing you should be asking, just a good Bible reading principle, is when you come across a passage like that, you should be asking, well, who are Cain and Abel? And then the second thing you should be asking is, where can I find their story, right? Seems like it's referencing, right, the people of old. Can I find more of their story in the Bible? And the answer is you can. And you say, well, how would I find that? Well, you ask a trusted friend, right, who is a believer, maybe somebody further ahead of you, someone, ask a pastor, right? It, literally, if you Google, Google has good uses. If you Google Cain and Abel, where in the Bible, right? It'll pull up Genesis chapter four. You can, if you have a study Bible, most Bibles will have some way that it references, hey, see chapter four of the book of Genesis. And so when you read your Bible, one of the best things you can do when you come across stuff like this is say, hey, I wanna know more about that. Where else in the Bible can it tell me more about what it just said? And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to Genesis chapter four. Let me give you some quick background, right? As you turn there or flip there or thumb there. Genesis one, God creates the world and everything in it, and it's good. Genesis 2, God brings Adam and Eve together. God says the only thing that's not good is that man is alone. He creates woman, brings them together. The first marriage, God officiates that, puts them in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. And then Genesis 3, everything falls apart. As Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and they turn away from God, they disobey God and they take from the tree that God told them, do not eat from that lest you die. So Genesis 4, sort of the overriding question is, what now? <laughs> They've been banished from the garden. Has God abandoned them? Is it all over? And actually Genesis 4 starts very hopefully reminding us, though it does not end particularly well, it starts very hopefully reminding us that no, God has not abandoned the human race. It starts this way, verse 1. We're going to read to verse 10. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That's a Hebrew euphemism, by the way, for the fact that they had sex. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. With the help of the Lord. She acknowledges. Like, it, God is still blessing us. God, God has not abandoned us as people, right? He's given us a son. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
Doesn't tell us anything particular about that offering, but just that it's an offering from the fruit of the ground. And Abel, verse 4, also brought, and notice the different language here, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, the first and the best that he has. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In other words, he didn't accept it. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That's important to note. I'll come back to that later. Cain's response to God's discipline and his disapproval is not repentance, but rage. All right? His response to God's discipline in his life is not repentance or humility, it's rage and anger. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, which tells us something that he did was not well, right? If you do well, will you not be accepted? I don't show favoritism, right? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. There's a lot we could say about that, but in other words, just a reminder, right? God looks at Cain and says, Cain, you continue down this path. Sin is crouching at the door. You have a spiritual enemy. That's true of you and me as well. And his desire is to kill you and destroy you. And he will put those things in your life and temptations in your life and use those sinful desires that are inside of you. And if you go down that path, sin, it wants to enslave you, kill you, promises much, but delivers death. He says, you got to turn from that, repent, and thereby rule over it. It's the same for you and for me. Some of us walking down paths and you're in danger and you know, I've strayed from the path. Today, repent, turn from that. Don't keep walking in it. Unfortunately, Cain, what does he choose? He chooses to continue in it. He, can, he gives in to the anger. He nurses the bitterness. And eventually he's consumed by his rage, such that he kills his brother. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> you can hear the sarcasm and defensiveness, right, in the response. There are so many parallels to Genesis chapter 3 here, just in that moment where God comes. So you remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve turn from God, and God comes down in the garden, and he says, where are you? They're hiding, right? It's not like God doesn't know, right? And all, it's not like God's there like, hey, in all of my omniscience and omnipotence, I can't see you, right? He's where, this is what's encouraging to me about it. Even after what Cain has done, God is still inviting him back into relationship. He doesn't, he already knows what happened. He doesn't need Cain to explain that. He's inviting him to confess, He's inviting him to open up and say, this is what I've done wrong. God doesn't come with a lightning bolt. He comes with a question. And it's so, there's so much in it. Some of us, right, you can, you can just hear Cain's response, this stiff arming of God. And how many of us, right, when we know deep down we're wrong, we respond in defensiveness and sarcasm. Deep down we know, but we don't want to admit it. And so we respond with these kind of answers, stiff-arming God. Some of us, we have, you've kept a secret or secrets for years. There are things that you haven't told anyone. Years or even decades. And you're carrying around that weight and that shame and that guilt. 
And I just want you, I want to remind you this morning, God's voice in your life is not the voice of accusation. It's the voice of invitation, calling you to repentance. Where are you? And if it's, what have you done? It's an invitation to say, tell him. He knows already. Tell him. Confess it. Maybe a first step for some of us today is to confess that to God and say, I know you know. But then to know and to hear, you are, because of the blood of Jesus, forgiven. Whatever it is. Maybe for some of you, a first step is just telling another human being, (laughs) confessing that, going to our next steps team today after we're done or finding a trusted brother or sister in Christ and saying, I've never told anybody this, but I I don't want to carry it around anymore. I don't want to keep walking down this path and have sin overrule me. I want to find freedom and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Verse 10, Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, I'm going to stop there. There's more to the story. If you, I would encourage you, please read it. He ends up banishing Cain, right, from where he is. And he tells him, look, the ground is no longer, he's a farmer. He says, the ground will no longer produce for you. And he has to leave, and Cain eventually tells God, the punishment is more than I can bear. Anyone who finds me, I'm going to be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and anyone who finds me will kill me. And actually, it ends with a lot of graciousness on God's part, where he says, not so, and he puts a a sign or a mark on Cain to protect him, and Cain ends up building a city and having, says he has a wife and he has children, right? And, And God, in some ways, continues to bless him, and yet there's a, (laughs) there's a deep sadness in the sense that the the last, kind of last phrase, it says, and he lived away from the presence of God. He lived away east, right of where he was, away from the presence of God. There are consequences to what he does, but there's so much, we have more more than enough to cover. So I want to roll back and ask, I think one of the central questions that most of us are probably wondering as you read it, and that's this, why did God regard or accept Abel's offering? and not Cain's. What happened there, <laughs> right? Hey, on, for, on, on just first reading, you read it and go, like he's coming and he's bringing, bringing a tithe in a sense, right? Here's some of my stuff, God. And God says, I don't have any regard for that. And you go, what gives? So here's what we have to do. We have to look at the passage itself and then we need to look at some of the New Testament commentary on what others have said about the situation to understand. Let's look at Genesis 4 itself. Go back to 3, 4, and 5. A lot of commentators, pastors, and theologians have noted, I'll just read it to you. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. A lot of pastors, theologians, commentators note the difference in the language there that it says Cain brought just an offering and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, you you think about Abel's offering. He brings his first and he brings his best and that's an act of faith on his part. It is an act of trust and worthy of an adoration and worship saying, God, and we may not get this if many of us aren't farmers, but right, he just took his most valuable possession in a sense. His most, this is the firstborn. God, I'm giving it to you and I'm trusting you that there's going to be a secondborn <laughs> and a thirdborn and a fourthborn. And God, this is the best I have. You're not worthy of my leftovers. You're worthy of the first and the best of my life. Here it is. I love you. I trust you. I'm trusting that you'll provide for me. It would seem in contrast 
that Cain brings, an offering, right? Here's what I've produced, and God, here's some of it. Here's some of my stuff. Will you bless me now? Is that enough to sort of get you off of my back? Now, some commentators make a, a big deal about animal or about Abel bringing an animal. You say, why? I don't think the point is that being a shepherd is inherently better than being a farmer, right? Both professions are talked about in the scriptures. Um, it was very normal at the time. Both are necessary. They point out that Abel, by his very offering, is bringing to God a recognition of, I need a substitute. This animal has been killed in my place, and I'm bringing it to you. And in a sense, maybe the, the covering of his sin by the sacrifice of an animal. I don't know if that's reading too much back into the text. I will say, and I'll come back to this at the end, there are some beautiful foreshadowings of the gospel there. But let me, let me hit some of the New Testament commentary. Hebrews 11, which we already read, tells us flatly, Abel came by faith and Cain didn't. Abel came by faith and Cain did not. So Abel comes in a spirit or an attitude of trust, love, adoration, worship. Cain seems to come with more of a self-righteousness. And here's some of my stuff and you can have it, but <laughs> will you bless me now? Which is why it says God had regard for both Abel. It's not just about the offering. God had regard for Abel and his offering. He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. It's not just about the offering. It's about the attitude with which they're bringing it. Do we trust God or not? Is this really about God or not? 1 John chapter 3 says, Man, Cain murdered Abel because his deeds were evil and Abel's righteous. Jude says something similar, right? That Cain was evil. And you keep going back to, yeah, but how do you really know Cain was evil? Here's a big part of it. You go back to Genesis 4 and you ask, what happened after God disciplines Cain? And I mentioned it already, you see a fair bit of Cain's heart exposed when he gets disappointment and disapproval. God says, Cain, I don't accept you or your offering. And Cain's response, if Cain were coming to God saying, Lord, I love you. First, I think God would have accepted the offering. But if you were coming with an attitude of trust and I love you and God says something's wrong here, Cain's response, the response of faith is, Father, forgive me. It's repentance and humility. What's wrong? What have I done? Lord, I know the wrong is not on your part. You don't show favoritism. You're a good God. So if something's wrong here, Lord, I want to make it right. Help me. What do I need to do? But instead, it's what? Oh, you're going to accept him and not me? Really? <laughs> it's bitterness and anger and rage because Cain didn't get what he wanted. Which begs the question, was this really about God in the first place? You can learn, this is a bit maybe of a side point, but I think it's a very important side point. You can learn a lot about your own heart when you get disappointed and when you don't get what you want. Look, you can, you can learn some about your heart, what's going on inside of you when life is all going your way, but you can learn a lot, generally speaking, you learn a lot about what is growing inside of you and the attitude of your heart when you don't get what you want, when you get disappointed by God or by others. I'll give you an example, right? <clears throat> um, this is a completely hypothetical situation that's definitely never happened in my life, all right? So with that introduction, <clears throat> let me say this, right? Let's say, 
again, completely hypothetically, I set up a date night for Morgan and I, right? Because I asked her permission if I could do this, by the way. She said yes. So um, imagine I set up a date night and I say to Morgan, and heck, I even kind of say to myself, right? Why am I doing this? Honey, you just, you've been working so hard with the kids and I just see how hard you're working and I want to give you a night off. This is about serving you, right? And so I set up babysitting and I set up dinner, right? And we go out and we have a great time for dinner. And then we come home and I, kids are to bed, right? And then the end of the night comes and I look over at her and I say, you look really beautiful, right? So what do you want to do before we go to bed, right? Wink, wink. And she looks back at me and says, I'm really tired. <laughs> I'd like to go to bed. Again, completely hypothetical and that's never happened before. But <laughs> my response in that moment tells me a lot about what's going on inside of my heart. And husbands, guys, I'll be the first to admit what has come out of my heart and my words, my reactions in that moment is not often, not always what I want to see come out of it or what is right. And when my response is one of frustration or anger because I didn't get what I wanted, that, that causes me to go back and ask, was this really about her? Was this really about serving her and loving her? Or was this about me and what I wanted? And I think that's an important application, right? Husbands, wives, in many relationships, right? Whether we're really looking to serve someone else or just trying to get something. But I wanna bring that back to how often do we do that with God? Where we are saying to God, you know, here, look. I, I brought some money. I gave you some money. I gave you some time, God. I went to church. <laughs> I did the stuff I was supposed to. Are you gonna bless me now? And when things don't turn out the way that we want, what comes out of us is not, well, Father, this was all for you in the first place. You give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But rather, what the heck, God? I, I'm a good person and you're supposed to do this for me. That's not faith, that's manipulation. That's not, that's not a heart of faith and adoration and worship. That's a heart of manipulation. I want what I want. And that's really, I think, what Cain is doing here. And you see it based on his response to what happens. It's not, Father, what do I need to do to, to make this right? It is, what in the world? <laughs> You're not going to accept me? You're not going to accept what I've given? Why are you accepting Abel and his offering? And then it's the rage and the, the anger and it consumes him to the point where he ends up murdering his brother. And I can almost, you can almost imagine God saying to Cain, and I, I say this because of what he says later on to the Israelites, Cain, I don't need your stuff. I don't need your, this is not about the fruit. I, I don't need your stuff. I want your heart. I want, I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I don't need you to I don't need you, and this is, listen, right, apply this to ourselves. I don't need you. God doesn't need you or me to, for us to give him our time or our money or our talents. Does he want us to? Yes, but he doesn't need those things from us. What he calls of us is faith. Trust him. Love him. See him for who he is. Trust his son Jesus. And then, yes, give your life back in adoration and worship to him. But he doesn't need those things from us. What he wants is our hearts. Now, Here's the next question, I think. You look at that response and you say, so what do we do with this, <laughs> right? How do we fully interpret the story? How does, 
Abel by his death, how does he still speak to us today? I want to give us two closing thoughts, two statements here. One, Cain gives us a picture of us. And secondly, I think Abel gives us a picture of Jesus. Cain gives us a picture of us, but Abel gives us a picture of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Let's talk about Cain gives us a picture of us. John Bloom, uh, in an article that he wrote on this story, he says this, in the story, though we'd rather see ourselves as Abel, we are all Cain. (laughs) That's so true, right? You you read the story and you go, I'm definitely Abel, right? (laughs) That's what we want. And that's probably good that we want that. The trouble is, we're all Cain. We were at one time cursed, hostile to God, and alienated from him. And John is quoting from Romans 8 and Ephesians 4 there. Cain gives us, if I can say it this way, a, a picture of the human heart without the transformation of Jesus. He gives us a picture of the human heart and what sin does to it, the way it enslaves us, the way we become angry and bitter, the way that we rebel against God, and the way that even when we acknowledge God, it is often trying to use him for our own ends rather than worshiping him as God for God. And when he doesn't do for us what we want, responding in anger or frustration. And some of us may think, I mean, Kale, that's a bit harsh. I'm not Cain, right? I've never murdered anyone. And I would say to you, yeah, hope not. And can I invite you to think about that more deeply and think about what Jesus said in his first ever sermon series, <laughs> Sermon on the Mount, where he said, look, you've heard it said that if you murder your brother, you're liable to judgment. He says, I tell you, if you're angry with your brother or sister, then you're liable to judgment. consistently in that sermon and throughout his teachings, Jesus says, God cares more about the inward heart and what's going on there than just the outward actions. God sees through us to our hearts and he knows what's going on. And so, I mean, are any of us really here willing to say, man, no, I have never harbored bitterness against another person. (laughs) I've never been angry with my brother, my sister, my friend, my neighbor, my family member. I've never cursed them in my mind. I've never had that secret sense of satisfaction when I saw something bad happen to the person that I don't like. I mean, are any of us willing to say, yep, that's me? Never done that? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we we see it. We know. And we look at the story and say, oh, Lord, I'm Cain. Using you for my own ends. Getting angry at you. Getting angry at my brother. But that would just leave us hopeless if that's where the story ended, which is why the second part is so good. Abel gives us, Cain gives us a picture of us and the devastation of sin. But Abel gives us a picture of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. You say, how does Abel give us a picture of Jesus? Think about it. It's a foreshadowing of the gospel. You've got a righteous man who by faith brings to God this perfect animal, this sacrifice, and then he's killed by his own brother. His blood is shed because of his righteousness. You look forward a few thousand years and you've got Jesus, the better and final Abel, a perfectly righteous man who doesn't just bring a sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. Jesus doesn't bring a lamb to God. The scriptures say he is the perfect lamb of God who gives himself his spotless life, offers that to God and dies in your place and in mine, murdered by his own people, by his own brothers because of his righteousness in your place and in mine. But here's the glorious difference. His blood shed at the cross does not condemn us. It forgives us. Abel's blood cries out 
for justice. I'll read to you from John Bloom, that same article. He says, Abel, the first martyr of faith, is a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, Abel Hebrews 12, 24. For though Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin, Jesus' innocent blood cried out for mercy for sinners. Abel's blood exposed Cain in his wretchedness. Jesus' blood covers our wretchedness and cleanses us from all sin. If I were to summarize the whole thing, right? Abel's blood cries out justice, 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 punishment for sin. Jesus' blood cries out mercy, mercy, mercy. Forgiveness for sin. It's been paid for once and for all. That's why Hebrews 12, 24 says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And to wrap this all around, right, we say that our first core value here is gospel identity. That if you're gonna live the Christian life, it does not start with saying, so what do I need to do? It starts with saying, you need to understand what God has done for you and who you are because of the blood of Jesus shed at the cross for you. You are a new creation. Gospel identity, I am new. I want you to say that with me, right? If you're in Christ today, I want you to say, I am, am new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 2.20, a particularly important one for my wife. She talked about it almost 10 years ago at her baptism. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Honestly, church, I think where a lot of us get screwed up in our daily walk with Jesus is we forget to preach to ourselves that we are new. We, we let sin, wounds, other people's opinions define us instead of saying, I am defined by who Jesus says that I am. I am who God says that I am. And I, because of Jesus, am a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So can I invite you right? As we start 2024, if you're here today and you love Jesus, I want you to leave here preaching to yourself. I am a new creation and the blood of Jesus has washed me clean. As we're going to sing in a moment, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied because of his sacrifice at the cross. His word, his blood speaks a better word over my life than the blood of Abel. I am a new creation because of Jesus. And I encourage you to walk in that newness of life. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you've never experienced the forgiveness of your sin, I invite you today, the voice of the Lord is the voice of invitation to you. And no matter what you've done, no matter what you're carrying with you, no matter what your background, today God is saying to you, like Cain, right? come and confess it. Maybe your life has been marked like Cain's, where you go, it's marked by anger, bitterness, disappointment, frustration, rage. I don't feel like I'm enough. Come to the foot of the cross today and let Jesus' blood speak a better word over your life and let it start today. You can be made new because of Jesus, starting now. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
Lord, we thank you for stories like these that teach us and instruct us. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for Jesus and that his blood speaks a better word over our lives. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that we are new. And God, I pray for every person here today who's a believer in Christ, who has been regenerated by your spirit, who's been forgiven by your blood, that God, we would leave here preaching that to ourselves. And each morning when we wake up, we would be reminded by you, we are not defined by the past, by present sin, by future failure. We are defined by what you say of us. And that is we are a new creation and the old has passed away. And we now live by faith in the Son of God who died for us. And Father, I pray for anyone here today, God, who may not have experienced that love, that today would be the day when they put their faith in you and they trust you and receive that new life. God, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.